Welcome once again to Father Spitzer's Universe at the busy intersection where faith and reason collide and sometimes get along. Most of the time they get along and the planets have lined up and so we've got another program for you. I'm Doug Keck, kind of the gatekeeper here in the mothership where mother began it all in 1981. Your questions are really important to us. We could use some more new ones, so email them to us at spitzersuniverse at EWTN.com. Check out all of Father Spitzer's websites, themagiscenter.com, purposefuluniverse.com, and spitzercenter.org. And of course, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EWTN YouTube channel and on our on-demand page. And while you're checking out that on-demand page on our website, check out St. John Paul II, The Spiritual Legacy. It's a fine program. Uh, Joanna Bogle and Claire Anderson explore Poland, the land which helped form the life and legacy of this great saint. And you can see it now and for free, anytime and on demand. And our topic today, continuing with Father's wonderful book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, again available through our EWTN Religious Catalog if you'd like to pick it up and kind of follow along. And speaking of books, the book of the month for September, 30 Marian Eucharistic Visits Adoring Jesus with His Mother by our friend Donna Marie Cooper O'Boyle, proudly published by EWTN Publishing as well. Have to be honest about that and uh, look forward to that book being made more available. And we're also looking forward to Father Spitzer and welcoming him on this week of Labor Day. So uh, first thing I'd ask you is you can pray for us and maybe remember the people who went through the hurricane in Florida and, the, and in the southeast. Absolutely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us today. Doug, myself, our whole audience, our staff, and everyone who is involved in it, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. Please bless all these people who are still suffering from the effects of the hurricane in Florida and all those who are uh, suffering in this world today. We ask all of these things through Jesus our Lord. Amen and Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Uh, so, Father, let me ask you a question. You had Labor Day there. I mean, do you, do you stop laboring? Do you give your laborers a day off uh, for Labor Day, or what? Uh, well, uh, no, I don't stop laboring. Uh, <laughs> okay. And I'm afraid my uh, good eye, Joan, uh, she... Uh, She's also a fellow laborer in the field, uh, so uh, so um, we do keep working because okay. there are many things to do and mm -hmm. uh, in the apostolate, and of course, uh, I also genuinely like uh, doing that. Mm -hmm. So, um, alas, alas. Okay, there you go. I I I got it. I got it. So let's get to a couple of articles uh, from over the last mm -hmm. couple of weeks. I thought I thought this was an interesting uh, story. Uh, that I picked up. Uh, it was an article about divorce, but it was talking about the phenomenon of what they call now gray divorce, or divorce over the age of 50. It increases, uh, oh. they say, 34.9% uh, of all divorces in the U.S. in 2020 are among those 55 or older. And we're learning the effects of divorce are not wow. unique to young children. So you've got that happening, and they're pointing out that that it has a big impact on adult children as well. 
not just on little children. Oh. And this person's quoted saying, my parents divorced when I was in my mid-20s was one of the worst things that ever happened to me. It broke me beyond repair, a person said. It, it went on to say it was found in this study that divorced fathers are more likely to remarry than mothers, but even if mothers remarry, they're more likely to maintain their relationships with their children than the remarried fathers, which is, you know, kind of makes sense. They say, in addition to altering parental relationships, great divorce often leads adult uh, children of those divorces to question their own relationships. So it has a negative impact on them. So not only is divorce not wonderful yeah. for the children, as we were told in the 60s and the 70s, and, and, and devastating now, mm -hmm. as we now know, for young children, it also has uh, a, an impact on adult children as well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm not surprised that it does have that impact. I, I really haven't looked at those studies yet, but I will. Mm. Um, I wasn't even aware that uh, of the phenomenon, really, of gray divorce. I, I knew there were obviously divorces of people who are over 55, but this sounds like a, a, what, is, a what was the statistic, like 31%? Oh, yeah, my yeah, gosh. Yeah, it's yeah. A, In the 30s. A, yep. a very high. And, yeah, and so, uh, uh, no, I'll have to a absolutely look at yeah. it and look at the phenomena of the effects on uh, on the young adult children um, and adult children. Uh, I'm sure that it, it, it really does have a huge impact because all those bonds of trust mm -hmm. that are so wrapped up in the tight and intimate relationship between the parents are suddenly shattered, and that just has to have an effect on the emotional life, um, you know, of the so daughters mm -hmm. and the sons. Uh, you know, of, of, the, of that couple. I mean, it's just like, can anything be trusted, right. you know, if my, uh, my parents are breaking up, you know, after the age of 55. Right, I mean, which it, means it, they've it been married, really, I could see. you know, 30 yeah. years yeah. plus kind of a thing, and maybe it makes you wonder, well, oh, was, yeah. it, was it ever really real? I thought, you know, this was yeah. a wonderful family, and, and, you, and again, you, you start questioning yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And and part of the problem, of course, is, uh, you know, when the children have grown up and are out of the household, sometimes either the husband or the wife, the um, priorities shift mm -hmm. and the value priorities do not shift for the better. I mean, uh, they shift to more superficial things. Mm -hmm. uh, so when before, when they had a young family, they were more level three, level four oriented. That is to say, they were more contributive uh, mm -hmm. toward the kids and for the family and more religiously oriented. Suddenly, um, when the kids are out of the household and they have some more time, more disposable income, they become more interested in materialistic and ego comparative things. And they decide to go for things that they sort of like a delayed gratification mm -hmm. to get level one and level two. Level one's materialistic pleasure and, um, and level uh, two is ego comparative, uh, you know, uh, satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And so you, you take those two things and you, you know, give it a real boost. And level one and level two always have the destructive effect of egocentricity and materialism, which, of course, uh, you know, are terrible. They're superficial mm -hmm. and they undermine uh, people. And it's not surprising, you know, if that really happens, not surprising that they could just get really egotistical and say, you know, I don't really need you anymore. The kids mm -hmm. are gone. I think I'm just going to go for the high class living here and um, see you later.
And so I can see how it would happen. We live in a society that absolutely encourages it, encourages us to be ourselves, to do what we really want, to mm -hmm. only go around once in this life, right. et cetera, et cetera. So I think uh, I can see how it would happen. Right. And I could see why the gray divorce phenomena would increase right. uh, in an increasingly materialistic and ego-comparative culture. Right, absolutely. And, and the emphasis on this uh, youth kind of thing or maintaining your youth yeah. and wanting to feel like you're still young yeah. and vigorous and there's much more ahead uh, for you in your life. That's right. Yeah, so, okay. That's right. Yeah, that I've maintained the same uh, vigor and virility that I had when I was young. And of course, if I take some more makeup on, I right. will be right. uh, vivacious as Botox I always was. And, uh, yeah. Some other, uh, yep. all the things you can do uh, to make kid yourself and that you're thinking you're going to live forever, which is probably another part of it. That's right. Or kid you, yeah, absolutely, that people see me in exactly the same way. And, um, you know, when in fact, you know, you have so much to contribute as a mature right. human being with uh, real value orientations that can help guide, uh, you know, your um, children, your grandchildren, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, all of that is, you know, uh, placed into a whole new setting that's oriented toward materialistic pleasure right. and ego, um, you know, sensitivities and ego comparative advantage. So, I, you know, what can I say other than, uh, you know, um, the culture is not a healthy one. Right. Go back to church, as they say, go back to contribution, go back to your family, go back to the cornerstones and the foundations of sane culture, mm -hmm. you know, family, of course, religion, of course, your principles, ethical values, and stay in the bedrock there. Don't move back into materialism. You'll get a high, all right, from doing that. Right. You'll get a high from going on the big pleasure trips and you know entering into the the culture of you know booze and mm. you know and uh, and pleasure and gambling, whatever you do. Mm. But uh, after the high wears off, as mm. Saint Ignatius of Loyola says, don't worry. The emptiness, anxiety, depression, <laughs> and uh, alienation will soon enter in right. because, of course you will have banished God from your existence. And we go back to St. Augustine. Our hearts are restless right. until they rest in thee. Right, absolutely. Uh, absolutely, it's almost like with any drug or even we talk about the gender affirming care, quote unquote, the idea that initially many <laughs> times there's a positive reaction to it, but then quickly yeah, over a yeah. period of time, uh, you know, there's a lot yeah. more remorse uh, in fact, there was a story, oh, yeah. you know, huge just, amount more right yeah. recently. I think it might have been out in California where there was a, a, mm -hmm. a mother who sued the school district because they kind of kept uh, hidden by, uh, away what her daughter was going through. And they I think she just won one hundred thousand yeah. uh, dollars from the uh, school district. And, and that's a good sign because mm -hmm. that's the beginning of the way to stop this kind of stuff is when people start, unfortunately, hit, getting hit in the pocketbook uh, over these things. That's right that uh, it makes them a little yeah. less open to being so, uh, you know, uh, quick to push this kind of stuff. Uh, just a quick pick up mm -hmm. from something we talked about several weeks ago about uh, William Friedkin had died and uh, there's a church pop article which is uh, published by EW10 and, and, uh, and mm -hmm. uh, the authoress here talks about an interview that Raymond did or talking about uh, William Friedkin, because they were actually pretty good friends over the last eight years of his life, and I oh, thought it really? was interesting, yeah, that Friedkin said, when talking about The Exorcist, it's a film about the constant presence of good and evil in our lives. 
He said, from the beginning of time, Cain and Abel, the Garden of Eden, the serpent, there has always been a powerful demonic force attempting to undermine the work of the Creator through all of history. It has always been the burden of goodness to triumph over the threat of evil. He also said, just because we don't believe in something or don't know something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I thought those were just interesting insights for him. No, and he those are really good his, words. And, and he credits his family oh, yeah. for keeping him centered through his Hollywood career. So. Oh. Oh, wow, that's great. I got to say, he's absolutely right. And uh, I, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, Friedkin, you know, certainly that, that movie did influence a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and it influenced them uh, more toward the good, for sure, mm -hmm. because all of a sudden it became apparent that perhaps there really is something out there <clears throat> like, uh, like evil and a pure uh, manifestation of darkness. And as I've said many times, mm -hmm. that movie was actually based on a diary that was made by several Jesuits at St. Louis University who uh, did the Robbie Mannheim exorcism. Mm -hmm. And of course there were the Hollywood antics in there, but if you just take those out, mm -hmm. basically what's left over, the, the terrifying things, it didn't need any of the Hollywood, you know, vomiting and so forth, projectile vomiting. All that stuff, basically, if you take it out, the horror of that exorcism um, writ large is mm -hmm. pretty accurately portrayed in the movie and um, and just as it was in the diary and by yeah. the way if you get that book uh, called possessed um, uh, you can see uh, the full diary okay. um, uh, in it uh, by Thomas Allen mm -hmm. um, and uh, just uh, take a look at that book the whole um, uh, diary is contained in the in the appendix uh, mm -hmm. to the book and he explains it he goes through it mm -hmm. and he he actually gets the files on it uh, on the beginning part of the exorcism uh, from Georgetown University it was actually in the archives uh, there um, in because it began at the Georgetown University Hospital but all those things are, are there and you can actually uh, see it it was very accurately mm -hmm. portrayed and is there a real evil spirit you know that's behind mm -hmm. that Oh yeah, absolutely. There's so much paranormal phenomenon, uh, phenomena associated with it. It's it's like uh, right. unbelievable. And uh, you know, Robbie, of course, is speaking in in Aramaic. He's you know, all these items are flying all over the place. The the Chester drawers are just moving across the room mm -hmm. without anybody even touching them. Uh, Robbie himself, of course, is doing the most remarkable things, levitating up in the air for you know, like a half an hour and so forth and so. On. I mean, uh, absolutely baffling in every respect. But boy, it took 39 uh, times. Mm -hmm. But really, you know, with the, right. the Holy Communion and with confession, uh, basically, you know, Robbie was able to come round. Mm -hmm. um, he, he took his little profession of faith. He went to confession. Finally, after spinning up the Holy Eucharist again and again, he, he finally uh, received it. And then on Easter Monday, uh, right after he had received communion, uh, basically that the 39th time they did the exorcism, it finally worked. Mm -hmm. Well, now that didn't all come out in the movie, but the movie did portray yeah. the reality of evil, and Friedkin, to his credit, did a very good job yeah. in portraying that. I just wish they had a little bit of, less of the Hollywood stuff. <laughs> well, it's a Hollywood yeah. movie. We can, we can only ask yeah. for so much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and following, following up on that, uh, there was another article uh, off of Church Pop that had to do with an interview that was done with uh, Father Martins, who's, who's an exorcist. 
and he made a couple of points. He said, contrary, and I'm interested in your take on it, contrary to popular belief, the job of an exorcist is not, quote unquote, to cast out the devil. Rather, it's to determine why the devil is present, to work with the victim, and to rescind the rights granted to the demonic presence. The job of the exorcist is to find out why the devil is there, what rights has he gained, and it's then his task to work with the victim in rescinding those rights, is what he said. Exorcism severs a toxic relationship with the devil and forges a new wholesome relationship with Christ. And he himself said, uh, when doing this, I don't fear the devil. Uh, I respect him, but I do not fear him. I thought that was an interesting take. Yeah. Oh, no, I think he's absolutely correct. The, the, you know, the, the devil cannot take away your free will. Yes, it is true to say that in an exorcism, right, when the eyes roll back, uh, you know, into the head mm -hmm. and that other voice kind of takes over and the temperature in the room mm -hmm. drops and you're dialoguing with a whole other personality, you think that, oh, that devil has taken over the personality of, of the person, the victim who's uh, possessed. But in point of fact, he's just suppressed the, the other person's personality. He has not taken that over. That personality of the real person is not dead at all. He's, of course, in front of it, as the mm -hmm. devil is in front of it, of course. Uh, he's kind of making his presence felt. And the, that's why the, the eyes are rolling back, mm -hmm. uh, you know, almost in, you know, as a, a sort of a subconscious a state is taking over that this other voice is in charge of. But eventually, um, you know, that, that uh, demonic voice, that mm -hmm. demonic presence recedes. And when it recedes, then the personality comes back. And that's, for example, when you would work with Robbie or the exorcist would work with Robbie. They'd try to catechize mm -hmm. him. They'd try to, you know, they absolutely did what Father Martin says. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, basically... Um, uh, tried to find out, you know, well, why did Robbie do this? Okay, he had this spiritualist aunt. The spiritualist aunt, she takes him aside and shows him not only how to use the Ouija board, but how to communicate with the spirits of the Ouija board. And so when she dies, and Robbie was kind of an isolated child, he, he really wasn't, you know, Mr. Popular at school, you know, she was his really good friend. Mm -hmm. So when she died, Robbie thought, well, I want my friend back. So he goes and takes out the Ouija board and thinks, I can communicate with her on the Ouija board. Well, of course, the devil is a liar, always was a liar. And so, you know, as Robbie begins his little adventure with the Ouija board, asking all these questions, the devil is posing, you know, the evil spirit is posing at that point mm -hmm. um, as his aunt. And then finally, of course, uh, you know, um, when it's way too late, as uh, Father Martins would say, mm -hmm. he has granted the devil rights uh, to come into him, uh, to be his companion, as it were, uh, to take, uh, uh, you know, possession uh, somehow of him. And those rights were granted, uh, you know, at, at that point. Now the problem begins because then the paranormal phenomena starts, then the, the demonic personality begins to manifest itself. But like I said, he can't take mm -hmm. away the real personality of Robbie. So about uh, you know, two thirds, three quarters of the time, Robbie's Robbie, mm -hmm. you know, and you, you know, he's, he looks like he's normal. But then when he's in that trance, mm -hmm. the eyes roll back, and the demonic voice comes and so forth and so on. You say, oh, that's psychotic. No, it, it really isn't. That's, mm -hmm. that's another presence, another voice 
who speaks other languages, who knows things, mm -hmm. who can, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, know what you did in your life, right? So in other words, the evil spirit knows what the exorcist ha has done or feels guilty about in his past life or whatever it is. He's going to use that against exorcist, play on him as well. There's just too much, uh, you know, uh, there that indicates another spirit with, you know, a, a certainly a, a kind of a preternatural force. So the uh, idea, though, that that uh, um, you know Robbie was, you know, his personality is taken away. No, mm -hmm. uh, Father Martin's is absolutely correct. Okay. You work with uh, right. the victim who really does have personality, right. and then when uh, when they're ready and right. they do their confession, receive Holy Communion, that's when the rite right. of exorcism can really take hold. Right. And in the in the the, the uh, diary, which does not come out in the movie, St. Michael is the one who at the end actually casts uh, the evil spirit out of Robbie. I mean, he's, you know, literally the voice is booming mm -hmm. uh, in the room, I'm St. Michael, out, out, out. And of course, when the evil spirit comes out mm -hmm. uh, of Robbie, I mean, uh, as, uh, as you know from you know, all the, the, the lights go out, not just in the Alexian Brothers Retreat House, mm -hmm. but in the college church all the way across town in St. Louis. All the lights went out in the college church where the exorcism had begun, mm -hmm. and all the priests that were saying mass there in the side altars uh, were shocked, and of course the boom uh, went not only into the Alexian Brothers Retreat House, but also the boom was heard in the college church mm. um, as well. Wow, okay. Very good. Yeah. One last, uh, just a, another quick story. I hit a bunch of church pop stuff uh, this week. I just thought this was mm -hmm. interesting. Okay. <laughs> there was a, a former ESPN anchor named Sage Steele. I don't know any really particularly that much about no. her. But uh, she was, uh, she had a lawsuit. I think she made some questions about COVID and how it was being handled. And she kind of got uh, knocked off the air uh, at ESPN, oh, okay. which again, people remind themselves that they're uh, owned by Disney. Uh, but the interesting thing was yeah. that uh, when she'd have to deal with going into ESPN and dealing with it while she was going through this, she said, every day I'd call my parents and I pulled into ESPN and each day we said the prayer together. And the prayer she said every day was St. Michael the Archangel, defend us. And that's what she used to get through mm -hmm. it all. I just thought that was an interesting story because of course oh, Mother I always, didn't know. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Mother was always big on uh, making sure we always say that after mass, yeah. so, you know. Absolutely, that's what we do every day here, too. Right, absolutely, we need all the help we can get. And like you said, obviously, even from yeah. talking about the exorcism, uh, maybe took the big gun there to finish everything off, right, so. All right, exactly, right. oh yeah. So. No, I, I'm a total believer in St. Michael. <laughs> there you go. So anyway, yeah. let's get to some questions some people sent us uh, while we're still here uh, in this side of the break. Uh, Dear Father Spencer, I have a family friend who is 14 years old, has not been baptized, does not have any faith formation. Knowing that I am a Catholic, this friend has asked me questions such as, how do you know Christianity is the true religion? And how do you know that the power ascribed to occult items such as crystals, tarot cards, etc. are from the evil spirit and not from a good spirit? Given that there is no faith formation in this young person's home, how can I effectively respond to these questions? person living in Canada and is concerned? Well, um, there are two ways that we, um, uh, you can approach, you know, Christ being, you know, the, the, the high moment of revelation, um, you know, of God uh, to the world. In other words, the Emmanuel, 
uh, the God with us that has come into the world. And um, the Christians, of course, we know him as the exclusive son of God. Now, um, how do we know? We can first know because, of course, we can see these things in his glorious resurrection. We can see them in the miracles that Jesus does in his own name. Now, no other prophet ever did miracles by his own authority and in his own name. Jesus says, I say to you, get out of the man. I say to you, be healed. I say to you, arise, little girl, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's no, you know, uh, plea uh, for, uh, to, to, you know, to be an intercessor and bring God's power into the picture. God's power already exists in Jesus. Remember, Jesus' resurrection is a resurrection in glory. He has been transformed in power and glory and light and spirit. Uh, which Paul talks about a pneumaticon soma, a spiritual body, etc. Now, uh, when you, as I said, you know, in my talks about the Shroud of Turin, and there's, uh, you can get a lot of this information. Just go to MajaCenter.com and just uh, go to the Shroud of Turin articles mm-hmm. and look at the kind of radiation that would be needed in order to cause a perfect three-dimensional um, uh, image, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, proportional image on a um, non-photographically uh, sensitive linen cloth. I mean, you can see pretty clearly uh, that when you're talking about six to, to eight billion watts of light energy or you know, a particle radiation uh, that would require uh, the complete dissolution, disintegration, nuclear disintegration of every stable atomic nuclei in that body, which is seven octillion of them. That's like a trillion, 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 trillion of these, uh, you know, uh, uh, stable atomic nuclei mm-hmm. s- simultaneously uh, disintegrating. Well, you put all those things together, and you're pretty much looking at a glorious resurrection right. uh, that's, you know, being manifest right there on that cloth. And I think that's a very intentional act on the part of God for a skeptical scientific generation like ours uh, that would occur 2,000 years later. But my point being, there is a lot of evidence for Jesus' glorious resurrection. There is a lot of evidence that he has left the Holy Spirit in the world. And how do we know that he has left the Holy Spirit in the world, the spirit of power, the spirit of miraculous healing, and so forth and so on? All you have to do is look at every single messianic movement that uh, occurred during the time um, and before, like 100 years before Jesus and 100 years after Jesus. And all I can say is every messianic movement where the Messiah died or was executed or something of that nature, that movement died out within a few years Mm. and it died out completely. The memory of the person was lost. Not Christianity. Mm. Jesus is executed and what do you notice? You notice an exponential Exponential increase uh, in the uh, um, uh, in Christianity's uh, growth and spread throughout the Roman Empire. It's absolutely, right. you know, historically absolutely. baffling, says N.T. Wright. And so you say, well, how did they do it? Two things: the resurrection and the occurrence of these miracles. Mm-hmm. The church, everywhere the apostles went, the miracles in the name of Jesus were prolific Mm -hmm. and that's what's causing this huge uh, you know um, raft of initial converts um, that's that uh, are occurring I I mean exponential growth in the initial years of the church it is in fact the miracles you know John P Meyer and T Wright to say without these it is absolutely inexplicable why Christianity would have a messianic movement categorically the opposite of 
of all the other Messianic right. movements. But notice that those apostles are doing the miracles, the healing, the raisings of the dead, etc., in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Well, if Jesus, if the apostles are lying about his resurrection, if the apostles are lying about him being Lord and the Son of God, why in the world would God work supernatural power in the name of Jesus through the apostles who are lying about him? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the you know the early Christian, the early converts were not stupid people. Right. They got the point. If God's working miracles through uh, the name of Jesus. Well, maybe everything the apostles are saying about Jesus and his resurrection is true. Well, you start putting these things together, Jesus doing miracles in his own name, Jesus is risen in glory, he, we even have scientific evidence for it, and you start looking at, uh, you know, the apostles having, you know, this, uh, this authority, this power uh, to not only cast out demons, but to heal and raise the dead in the name of Jesus, etc. You start putting all the facts together, let's call that the objective side of the equation. You know, Christianity looks like, you know, all, if all these things really did occur, as we can deductively mm -hmm. uh, uh, believe that they did occur because the apostles had this power in Jesus' name, let's go to the subjective side to the equation. Is there something about Jesus' preaching that leads you to believe that he really does have the, uh, you know, categorical um, you know, truth, the, the real truth about who God is. And that is to be found in Jesus' view of the highest commandment, namely love. So Jesus changes the world in four ways. Right. The first way he changes the world is he says, uh, you know, what love is. He defines it in terms of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means the humble hearted. So Jesus is saying like, you know, the humble hearted, that's, that's a, you know, kind of a, a high commandment. That's where you're going to find the path to happiness. That's where you're going to find the path to human peace and communion with one another. And blessed are the, the, the gentle hearted, right? The meek, the gentle hearted. And, and blessed are those who have compassion and forgiveness, right? Well, that's Father, the merciful. Let me, let me, so he me, goes let through me, these... Let me meekly yeah. interrupt you in all humility. Uh, we, <laughs> we have to take a break, so... You can finish off one, and we can I'm hit the next couple. On, I know you are, and <laughs> okay. you're on a roll there. On, uh, if for, and also, I want to get to the second part, which is saying, okay, Christianity may be true, but wh why are why are these other things bad? Okay, so stay right there. Okay. You stay right it. there. Father's ready. Stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. you staying with us as we continue with Father's book on the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church and not only that topic which is available through our catalog but we're going to turn to Father and he's going to continue finishing off number one and going through number four and then we'll get to the second part of the question. Father, go ahead. Okay, so um, what we saw, um, you know, is the objective side of, of the equation for Christ um, being uh, the true revelation of, of who God is, right? The Son of God. And we looked at the glorious resurrection. We looked at uh, his apostles' power uh, to, um, through the Holy Spirit, to heal and raise the dead in the name of Jesus. We looked at um, his, Jesus' own power to, to heal and raise the dead by his own authority. The objective side of the equation now 
now is complemented by Jesus' teaching, the mm -hmm. subjective side of the equation. There's something in that teaching that we know in our hearts is really right. And the first thing is Jesus' definition of love changes the whole picture on what love is. So, the, you know, he has these four, um, you know, ways in which he changes the, the whole uh, picture on love and not only the picture on love, but elevates it to the highest commandment. So the first thing is he redefines love in terms of the Beatitudes. So we saw, you know, the, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the humble hearted. Blessed are the meek, that's the gentle hearted. Blessed are those uh, who um, hunger and thirst for holiness. Blessed are those who are merciful, that means the compassionate and the forgiving. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the pure of heart, those who are authentic in their hearts, etc. So when he says this, he's defining what love is. And it's a whole new inter and intrasubjective view of love. It's a whole new way of looking at, you know, the interior conversion toward love as well as exterior behaviors mm -hmm. uh, that are, you know, appropriate. That's very different from the real empathetic, the real affectionate, the real genuinely caring, concerned, compassionate love that Jesus is trying to instruct his apostles and disciples on in the Beatitudes. The second thing that Jesus does is he elevates love to the highest of all the commandments. And this is super relevant. And, and, and you know, the, the idea that, you know, there was no highest commandment, not only in Judaism, in any religion. Nobody ever proclaimed a single commandment to be the highest commandment. Jesus alone, and Jesus knows this is a, like a little uh, trap for him. Mm -hmm. So he knows, you know, when somebody, oh, what's the highest of all the commandments? Mm -hmm. You know, they expect him to try and wheedle out of it. But Jesus, here it is. Uh, you know, you shall love the Lord your God. This is the highest with all your soul, strength, heart, and mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's already defined what love is in the Beatitudes. So the minute that's happened, he's elevated these things. Well, what does that mean? All other virtues, all other commandments are beholding to that commandment. In other words, you can say, well, is courage a virtue? Of course courage is a virtue. Is self-discipline a virtue? Of course self-discipline is a virtue. But if the courage ends up being unloving, if it separates people, if it's hateful, if it undermines them, if it undermines human communion, then no, that's, that, that, that's not good. Mm -hmm. So in other words, these other virtues have to serve the virtue of love. So Stoicism, when the Stoics say, hey, you know, you got to be really courageous and self-disciplined. But, of course, if it comes down to, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, being cur courageous and persecuting a whole bunch of people, uh, well, if that's, uh, you know, the courageous thing, dude, just go ahead and do it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, church lady, if you, if you want to be a proud and arrogant person uh, mm -hmm. in your religious belief, you know, go right ahead uh, and, and do it. You know, maybe a Stoic would say, but a Christian would say, no, you, you really shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. you, you shouldn't be church lady, you know, arrogant and pride and spiritually proud, etc. So the idea that he, the second thing that he does is he says, this is the highest commandment and every other commandment is beholding to it. Then Jesus does the third thing. He basically says that God himself is not just love. God himself is unrestricted love. Now, this is a, a very important uh, commandment because it changes the entire nature of God. Previously, in all other religions, you can see that love and justice are put on an equal footing. Mm -hmm. Now Jesus is actually uh, saying that God's heart 
is more, uh, you know, he, he can trump love. I mean, he can trump justice with love, which is why, you know, Jesus is asking us to forgive 70 times, seven times. In other words, mercy has to go beyond justice as many times as it can. By the way, if you say 70 times seven, that's seven right to a prime number times 10 times a prime number. That's like a Jewish way of saying infinity. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the basically thing is, is you have to do it an unending number of times that you allow mercy to trump justice. Now, once Jesus says that, once he, you know, he, he goes even further and he says, look, you know, the, here is, you know, the, the commandment I want you all to, to say. Now, everybody thinks he's going to give them the silver rule, right? Because the silver rule is in every religion. Do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Don't do a harm to others you don't want done to you. Mm -hmm. Now Jesus comes along and he takes, you know, that basically means avoid unnecessary harm. Mm -hmm. And if a harm is unavoidable, minimize it. That's ethical minimalism. Jesus is very crafty. He takes the knots out of that um, uh, silver rule and now he turns it into the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. That changes everything. This is not just avoiding unnecessary harms. This is not just uh, uh, minimizing unavoidable harms. Mm -hmm. This now do the good for others you would want done to you. Mm -hmm. That's ethical maximalism. The sky's the limit. What are all the goods you want done to you? Then do that to your neighbor. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you can see love now is again triumphing over justice, right? Basically uh, what the silver rule is saying is don't perpetrate an injustice. Don't harm a, a person unnecessarily. That would be unjust. Jesus is saying more than that. He's saying do the good, mm -hmm. right? You know, contribute, love another human being, do the good for others as you would have done to you. Now this is going to change the world, I might point out, mm -hmm. uh, the moment that, that Jesus says this, because he's basically combining you know, his redefinition of love, his love as the final, as the ultimate commandment, and God as mm -hmm. unconditional love. He's now uh, combining them together in this commandment, do the good for others, you would have them do unto you. Mm -hmm. And look at what the Christian church does. It goes out immediately, and it starts all of these educational systems, even educate slaves. It goes out and begins to start all these charitable systems, all these healthcare systems, right? So the, the Christians are out there, not just attending to their own, to, mm -hmm. to Christians, all everywhere. If, you, if, if a slave needs a charity, uh, needs health, needs education, give it to them. That, you know, it was the, the Christians who got, uh, you know, who ended slavery in Rome, and they did it by educating the slaves. So much so that even during the Diocletian uh, persecution, um, you know, uh, when, when they, they tried to, you know, take all the, the slaves who were Christians or educated by Christians in the Roman bureaucracy and, you know, persecute them, you know, uh, uh, Diocletian said, oops, you guys, we can't do this too fast because that's about three quarters of the bureaucrats we've got. It's going to mm -hmm. shut down the entire Roman government. The Christians have been so successful mm -hmm. in educating those slaves 
that they couldn't do without Christian-educated bureaucrats. So they basically had to stop that in a hurry. But you can see already that, that, that Christianity with this view of love is, is beginning to transform everything. And if you keep uh, looking at what was going on, you can even see um, that this, t until today, basically, mm -hmm. I mean, just, you know, the, the medieval times, all these huge hospitals and all these huge right. education systems that were turned into public education. You didn't have to be a Christian uh, to come and get educated at a, at a Christian college. And then finally, you look today, and what's the largest educational system in, in the whole world? It, it's, it's the Catholic Church. Uh, basically, mm -hmm. uh, we've got, you know, um, nearly 10,000 uh, elementary and middle schools um, in, in, uh, the, uh, throughout the world, 10,000, and, and we've got basically uh, almost 5,000 high schools uh, throughout the world. Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm uh, 100,000 um, uh, uh, school, uh, middle schools and 50,000 um, middle schools, um, I mean, and uh, 50,000 high schools, and basically uh, 1,700 universities that are out there. There's no international organization with more education uh, than the Catholic Absolutely. Church. You take a look to the public health uh, health system. The Catholic Church oversees fully 26% right. so, so of the public health care. So if we accept the fact that, let's say, like they say, that Christianity is the true religion, Okay, and somebody says, okay, you yeah. convinced me it's the true religion. It makes a lot of sense to me. But what's mm. wrong with the idea, as this person said, you know, crystals or tarot cards, uh, you know, using mm -hmm. those, uh, and w why are you so certain those come from an evil spirit? And they're not just, you know, maybe the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit's using that to, to talk to me. Because they're contrary to love. That's why. Mm -hmm. Take a look at what the fruits are and what is promised. So you want to cast a spell over somebody? You want to take away somebody's freedom? That's not a loving thing to do. That casting a spell on somebody to harm them or to make them unfree or to make them, quote unquote, love you or stay attached to you in an illicit way, all of these things, you start looking at What's being sought after in a spell, right? What's being sought after? Oh, you want to have special knowledge from the tarot card? Why do people go to the Ouija board? Mm -hmm. Because when the, the, when the planchet moves around the Ouija board on its own, mm -hmm. it's fascinating. But more than that, it gives you answers to your questions. And of course, you have to remember that the spirit who's answering them is a liar, liar, liar. Mm -hmm. But they're seeking after what? an illegitimate kind of knowledge. Mm. They're trying to get a knowledge about another human being. They're trying to get knowledge about even the stock market. I kid you not, all these crazy things. But of course, the spirit who's telling you these things is one big, huge liar. And of course, they, you know, there's always something right about what right, they right, say right, right, that right. gets the person hooked and addicted. And then of course, they lead them on the primrose path right to destruction through all the lies that are embedded in these little ostensibly true statements. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, but <clears throat> take a look at all the ends of these things. I want, I hate that person. I want that person 
uh, down. I want that person, I don't cast a spell on that. Of course, if you're a good Christian, you're going to confession, communion, you're in the church, you're not, they're not going to have any power over you at all. You can swat that spell away, by the way, like, like, like a fly. You know what? What difference does it make to me? Cast the spells as you wish. It's not, you know, I could care less. I mean, I, I, and, and every Christian uh, who is a true Christian uh, Catholic knows this to be the fact. Now, the, the, the thing that's important, though, is look at the aims that are being sought, you know, when you're trying to do this. Why do you want this now? You say, well, he's just trying to communicate with this person who is dead. Mm -hmm. You know, well, do you think that that's what God wanted? If that person is dead, you know, and, and that person uh, is with the Lord, and you trust that they're with the Lord, then, you know, why are you trying to communicate with them? You know, are you trying to get some kind of knowledge? Are you trying to get some sort of surety that mm -hmm. God did not intend, that the Creator did not intend by actually putting this, you know, this barrier, this imposition of death in our midst? We have to accept that, accept the condition that we are brought into. Whenever mm -hmm. we're trying to get something which the Creator did not intend, whenever we're trying to get a power over somebody that okay. the Creator did not intend, whenever we're trying to get knowledge over somebody that the Creator did not, or knowledge about something that the Creator did not intend, notice it's always going to be, in some sense, contrary to love, always going to be, in some sense, disobedient mm -hmm. in, uh, to the will of the Creator. There's always those two characteristics that are there. Mm -hmm. I want more than enough. In other words, you know, it's that great line from Arthur, you know, when uh, Arthur says, I'll have another drink. And his butler says, you've had enough. And he goes, I want more than enough. And of course, that's the indicator, right. the more than enough is, you know, I want more than what was intended for me. Hmm. I want, you know, uh, to have a kind of a, a power or a knowledge or even, a, hmm. uh, you know, a, a, a vengeance hmm. that was never intended uh, by the Creator for the right. likes of me, the creature, and I can't do it in all humility. So it's anti-humility, it's anti-gentleness of spirit, it is anti, um, you know, um, uh, obedient to God, right. and, and in the end result, it winds up being very anti-loving. And it's against Scripture, I mean, basically, you're, you're, you're basically warned it's against, against scripture. that uh, for, for a reason. Yeah, disobedient. And, right, and you are opening yourself mm -hmm. up when you're doing this to those spirits uh, that allow them then to possibly gain access to you, which you don't want, obviously. Oh, in order to get their little gift of knowledge and power, mm -hmm. that's the deal you have to make with them. Mm -hmm. You have to, in some sense, submit yourself to them and invite them into you. Right. And if you do anything crazy like that, you can expect they'll take full advantage and you will soon find mm -hmm. that there are strange things going on in your right. life. And now, of course, it's going to be a, a, a journey, but the sacraments are the power out of the journey. And if you ever wanted to get, you know, some sense of how powerful the sacraments are, you can see how important they are when you're dealing with an evil spirit in the world. It's the sacraments that are the basis, right, the Holy Communion and Confession in particular, that are the basis for, you know, the, the successful uh, exorcism. It's it's that kind of a 
power of God that's present in you mm-hmm. that, that makes, um, you know, evil, as it were, break its grip and, you know, it, it can't uh, stand being in you or around you anymore as you pursue the holy life. Well, that was a great question and a great answer because uh, we had one question yeah. and, and, and we basically uh, took him half the program most, most of our way through the show. Uh, so, in, in, in turning uh, to, to the to the book itself uh, on twenty seven, page twenty seven, you talk about the idea, and you were alluding to it before, the deeper appreciation of Jesus's view of love, given the Beatitudes Sermon on the Mount. Talk about agape and uh, filial love, etc. And then you go on to talk about mm-hmm. this. When we understand that the church's, church's objective moral norms are meant solely for our development and happiness in the mm-hmm. three loves, they are no longer seen as unfair or burdensome, but rather gifts that lead us closer to God. Why do you think so many people, especially today, seem like they view them as limitations and burdens? Because our view of freedom is not oriented toward generous, contributive love. Mm-hmm. Our view of freedom is what's in it for me? How will I benefit? I'm not worried about how somebody else will benefit. I'm worried about, I want me to benefit from this, and I want to be more free, I want to have more power, I want to be unconstrained by you. Love is the opposite. I allow myself to be constrained by the beloved. Now, of course, if you if you look at that, the view of freedom within our society, right? I don't want to be constrained by anybody. I want to be able to do my own thing when I want to be able to do it. I want to get what I want when I want it. I want to get my full dose of pleasure and ego fulfillment whenever I you know, can get it. You owe it to yourself, right? The old line of the culture, you know, I owe it to myself. And, and so the, uh, uh, the basic uh, policy at, at, at the end of the day is if I can get that, then I'm going to be a real happy person. Hmm. Here comes the church, and they're telling me, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal. Here comes the church, and the church says, don't commit adultery. Mm -hmm. And it says, you know, um, uh, don't look um, at... um, pornography and and it's and the church says hey you know don't um, enter into a sexual relationship with somebody without the intention of exclusive permanent commitment in marriage right uh, toward you know family and children don't do this and don't do that well that's com- completely commensurate with the teaching of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ didn't say these things because he wanted to delimit us and put useless rules in front of us and to take our happiness and freedom away Jesus said this to us because that that's the path to love. That's the path to generous love. That's the path to developing generativity and to good solid families and to have you know good in- emotionally intimate relationships with people, which is the way to give yourself to uh, uh, you know your partner in marriage totally, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the emotional intimacy. That's what's going to become uh, the foundation. And then religion strengthens that uh, you know emotional intimacy. And there's you know the Thornton studies show the, the, the very strong correlation between between religion, emotional intimacy, long-lasting marriages, and satisfying marriages. And then you actually move to the next stage, right, where you can see pretty clearly 
that, um, you know, with emotional intimacy in place, well, family's the natural intention. So you've got the, the triad of, of, you know, of, of religion, you've mm -hmm. got family, and, and, and you've got, you know, this emotional intimacy, the ground of the spouses, and they're very, very strengthened by one another, right? It's like a triple, uh, re, uh, you know, um, reciprocal relationship uh, that's going on between these three things. And uh, it's, it's really a formula, not only for a strong, good family with strong, healthy children and, you know, entering into a community in a strong, healthy, uh, communitarian way, but it's a way of, of teaching your, your children your religion and your principles and your ethics in a very strong and good way, and that becomes a foundation stone for the church, as the letter to the Ephesians tells us, but more than just a foundation stone for the church, also for the culture itself. If the family goes, believe me, the culture will disintegrate. I mean, the, it's always the strong family, which is at the heart of culture, the heart of ethical principles that are, you know, embraced in the heart of, of the children and, and so forth. It's the heart of religion, and religion is the key factor to happiness in people's lives. You'll never get to ultimate happiness without some kind of relationship with God. You look at those American Psychiatric Association studies, it's very, very clear that people who are, uh, you know, not affiliated with religion have significantly higher rates of depression and anxiety and, and um, uh, you know, antisocial aggressivity and, and um, substance abuse, familial tension, suicidal contemplation, and suicides. Mm -hmm. So the idea then is, is if you if you look at this you know in any realistic way that is the road to not only you know love it's not just the road to doing what Jesus said to do it's the road to emotional health to spiritual health to relational health and to marital health and so the, this is why Jesus is teaching it. These are gems. Uh, you know, what Jesus is saying when he, he's saying, don't have a sexual relationship outside of, uh, you know, an, an, a well-intended marriage uh, toward a family and, and support it with your religion. I mean, he's not just saying this, mm -hmm. you know, uh, to, to restrict your freedom and, 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 and take all the fun out of life. He's saying this because it really is true. This is the road to happiness. It's the road to eternal salvation. And if you take an alternative road, you're going to turn to a greater and greater egocentricity, a greater and greater satisfaction of your mere sensual desires and ego comparative longings. And when that begins to happen, you're going down the road to darkness. Mm -hmm. You're following another spirit, another spirit that says what's really going to make you happy mm -hmm. is power and vanity and people just admiring and groveling all over the place at you. That's what you really want. You're going to be happy when your Instagram is like super popular and everybody's just liking you to death on Facebook and so forth and so on. You're going to be really happy. But of course you know mm -hmm. this is just dark, 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 egocentric, narcissistic, you know, um, and, and he's got you seduced into it and as he's as he's reeling oh, you yeah. in closer and closer to himself, try and get off that path to darkness when you're really addicted. I'm telling you, it's really dark. Our culture is dark. Mm -hmm. We've got to go back to what Jesus said. You know, it's not about just, you know, these things are not rules imposed arbitrarily. 
These are rules which are absolutely gems. They're the great signifiers of love. They're the great signifiers of true happiness in family and relationship. They're the great signifiers of, of you know, what's going to produce a relationship with God that will move me on the path to salvation. And anything contrary to them, you watch it. It'll always go toward narcissism, always go toward egocentricity, always go to power, domination, vanity, always go uh, to, toward the dark spirit and the dark side. So Absolutely. I just leave you at, at that, you know. And, and well, that's a perfect uh, ending clear. The, uh, uh, to uh, our take oh, on I that. And the next time we'll talk about the strengthening <laughs> of foundations of Catholic moral teaching when we once more get together with Father Spitzer. If you'd like to give us your blessing on the way out the door, Father, that'd be great. Absolutely. Bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord, uh, who truly is the Lord of wisdom, the Lord that intends pure good for you by the rules that are manifest uh, in, in the church and through his Son, the Lord that intends true happiness and love for you unto eternity, send you his Spirit so that you might understand this so deeply, so categorically, that you follow that path, teach others to do so, and be the true founders of the kingdom of God unto your salvation and the salvation of those you touch. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much, as always, Father Spitzer. Be well. We shall see you next week. Don't forget, Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available in our EWTN Religious Catalog, some of them on your screen right now. Next week we continue, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. And EWTN's bookmark, Glorifying Christ, The Life of Cardinal Francis E. George OMI by Michael Heinlein. This is an excellent book. It's a pretty good interview. But if you don't see the interview, you should still check out the book. It's a wonderful book about a wonderful man. And also, 2023 Family Celebration held on the 26th of August right here in Birmingham, Alabama. If you didn't have the opportunity to attend, you want to see some of the great talks, we will air it beginning on Saturday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Check EW10.com for showtimes in your area. It will also be available, of course, on our on-demand page so you can watch it anytime. And I'm Doug Keck. This has been Father Spitzer's Universe. We shall see you next time. Thanks. <music>